This is Brand and New from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property. I am Audrey Dove. Welcome to Brand and New. The fundamental goals of the intellectual property system, as designed for the industrial era about 100 years ago, have always been to foster creativity and innovation by granting monopoly rights, providing a sustainable economic basis for it. IP rights have been challenged by new technologies, new market trends, but the pace of these challenges has increased over the last decade or so. Artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, or even life science innovations have a disruptive impact on traditional IP legal concepts and systems. But to what extent the core notions of the IP systems are not adapted anymore? And are there new IP rights to expect in the future? Who else to answer these questions than Francis Gurry, the Director General of the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, since 2008, who has been active in encouraging global cooperation efforts involving governments, international organizations, and the private sector. WIPO, based in Geneva, Switzerland, leads the development of a balanced and effective international IP system. This agency of the United Nations is the global forum for intellectual property services, policy, information and cooperation for its 192 member states. Thank you very much, Francis, for joining us. It's a pleasure, Audrey. You've been the Director General of the WIPO for the last 11 years, a period that has witnessed great evolutions in the IP ecosystem. What are the main changes that have struck you during this period of time? And if we talk about also the future, what are the challenges that you can foresee? Well, look, taking a global picture, I think, you know, we've seen three persistent trends in the course of the last uh, 11 years in particular. Uh, First is the volume of IP applications worldwide. So this is a function of uh, the knowledge economy, if you like, more generally, uh, the fact that intangible assets and intellectual capital are becoming increasingly important, and that is driving demand for intellectual property rights, which, after all, control intellectual capital. And as that intellectual capital becomes an increasingly important component, we see that uh, in 2018, the last year for which we have full figures, There were 3.2 million patent applications around the world, 12.4 million trademark applications worldwide, and about 1.2 million design applications worldwide. So these are prodigious figures. These are really Mm. large numbers. So that's one trend we see, and there's no sign of abatement there. Mm -hmm. A second trend we see is the composition of that demand. So the composition has changed. If you go back merely 20 years, you would see uh, a dominance of Europe and North America. Well, in 2018, two-thirds of intellectual property applications filed worldwide originated in Asia. And then I think a third general and persistent trend we see is increasing complexity, and that relates to the governance of intellectual property. You have so many more institutions involved at the national, uh, bilateral, plurilateral uh, regional and multilateral level, that it's a very complex architecture. Yeah. And it relates to the subject matter. You know, um, you've mentioned, Audrey, a number of new technologies which are posing new challenges. So the subject matter has become increasingly 
more complex to deal with and making innovation policy for those new technologies is a vastly more complex task. Sure. Now, how does that all pan out for the future? Well, look, I think that those, and there are uh, commentators who believe that, you know, well, the uh, intellectual property system, it was largely, as you have suggested, a a creation of the industrial age, uh, and it's not applying well to the digital age. Well, I would say that the problem with that view is that it's counter-empirical. That's not what the data are telling us. The data are telling us that never before has there been so much demand for intellectual property rights of the classical variety. And so I don't think the intellectual property system as invented for the industrial age is going out of fashion, on the contrary. Uh, However, that doesn't mean that we don't have a need for new rights for new technologies, and that's a big area for us to explore. You know, what sort of rights might be needed to encourage innovation in basically the digital economy? Yeah. Artificial intelligence raises a lot of questions. Uh, Talking about patents, how to create property rights in an algorithm that is constantly changing, Uh, Talking about copyright, who should be considered the author of a machine-generated work of art? What are your views? Well, look, I think it's a great question, and I think all of our views are in evolution here. What we see is that the existing intellectual property system, again, is being widely used for artificial intelligence applications. We surveyed all patent applications and all scientific publications also, Uh, in the field of artificial intelligence since the 1950s, since its beginning. And what we see is that there were about 340,000 patent applications filed in that rather large period, but over 50% of them have been filed since 2014. So a great upsurge in activity. Mm -hmm. So the existing system is applying to artificial intelligence. But as you've said, you know, it's applying to algorithms, it's applying to the computer resources that we uh, use for running artificial intelligence applications. Sure. The big question is data. Artificial intelligence algorithms, of course, feed upon data. Now, what are all the rights in relation to data and whose data uh, are they? Uh, that's a big question to explore. And it's a new layer, I would suggest, rather than a replacement mm-hmm. of the existing intellectual property rights. Yeah. How would you uh, envisage this new layer? Well, I think we're still at the stage of trying to formulate the right questions, frankly, Mm -hmm. Um, because over data, uh, you know, you have an intersection of a large number of different policy perspectives. You have the policy perspective of privacy, personal data, protection. You have the policy perspective uh, of the market and the concentration of data Uh, in the hands of certain corporations. That's the competition law question that we see. You have security questions, uh, cybersecurity questions around data. You have uh, integrity questions uh, relating to data, namely the fake news uh, sort of question and propaganda and how do we in this world determine what data are accurate or uh, not. And then, of course, you have the ethical questions, 
which may affect medical data uh, and which intersect with all those other questions. And you have, as well, the property question. Whose data is it? Uh, and I think you see all of this in, in the field of medical data in particular. You know, it's quite a large market. One estimate puts medical data, uh, the value of medical data globally per annum at around about $240 billion. It's enormous. And we know that applications are going to be built on the basis of those data in the future. Now, how do you deal with that? Because you, it involves the personal data protection question. It involves security. You don't want your medical record or out there over the Internet. Uh, it involves integrity questions. You can't falsify this. And it involves property questions as well. So that's a very good example. And we're all struggling to try to determine how, from a policy point of view, now in our little area, how do we encourage innovation to develop the artificial intelligence and other applications that are going to result in better health services for the world? But uh, what's, the, what's the policy basis for that? We've always used intellectual property in the past. And how can we do that without offending all of those other policies with, to which we attach a great deal of importance. Mm -hmm. Data is said to be the new gold, and based on the huge investments made by all businesses in collecting, processing, storing uh, large amounts of data, it has better be uh, enormous quantities of data that have significant value but don't constitute an invention or copyrightable work in the classical sense. So your vision uh, on yeah. whether or not there should be some form of ownership right over data is, uh, is very interesting. Yes, well, look, I think um, it also depends on what you mean by ownership rights. And this is where I think we're at the stage of thinking, uh, you know, <clears throat> and we need to be careful that we don't hurry in and make mistakes uh, that are going to have a, a, an adverse impact on, on this uh, very active, innovative environment. You see, I think that property is what's well, a concept that we use frequently, but I think there are styles of property for different technological ages. At the base, property is an exclusionary right. It's a right of control. Uh, so that's what we think of in terms of physical uh, assets and okay. property in relation to physical assets. I can exclude people from my physical assets or I can control those physical assets or the use of them. And when it comes to intangible property, the, the concept becomes more complex. I mean, how do you exclude people and how do you control it out there in this world? So that's, that's difficult. And I think that, you know, I use the example, if you go back to Hammurabi and the movement from groups of human beings who really operate on the basis of open source in hunting and gathering and their movement to settled cities. And then along came a few of these uh, rulers in Fertile Crescent, amongst other places, and you see the emergence of individual private property rights as against the collectivity having the right to hunt any resources or the right to gather any resources. Uh, and <clears throat> that emergence of private property rights was an extremely important uh, event for uh, humanity. Mm -hmm. But Hammurabi didn't say in his code of laws, you shall have property in a sheep. Uh, what he said is, if you steal a neighbor's sheep, then you'll be liable for this punishment. 
and out of that we construct the notion of property. So when we see rights in relation to data which restrict access to data or give certain powers of control over data, they are the emergence of property rights in relation to data. Very relevant to go back to basics and to the definition <laughs> of the, the different notions. I wanted to have your views also on security. Um, we usually talk about data in relation to security from a prevention perspective, but the consequences of a breach and the tools available to mitigate such uh, breaches trigger many IP issues as well. Do you think that the aftermath of data breaches can be a source of innovation and therefore of intellectual property? <clears throat> yes, I think so. And I think so on the basis that, you know, uh, we are uh, inventing new technologies and, and we are innovating to meet our needs. No sooner do we invent something and it introduces a beneficial social or economic impact, but it also introduces a new challenge. Uh, and that's the case, of course, with the digital economy. And one of those challenges is cybersecurity. So I think we see technology then starting to evolve to develop solutions to uh, cybersecurity. So Gartner estimated, for example, that worldwide spending on information security products and services was more than $114 billion in 2018. And that was an increase of about 12.4% over the preceding year. Mm -hmm. uh, and our own technology trends reports shows that Top IT companies like IBM, Microsoft, Intel, amongst others, and many others are filing a number of patents in the cybersecurity, privacy, anonymity, and cryptography areas. So, yes, we invent something. It has beneficial effects. It has some bad side effects. Then we invent other things to address the side effects, and that's what's happening, I think, in the case of cybersecurity. Among the, the effects that, that you mentioned, you, you talked earlier about ethics. The issues raised by disruptive technologies are clearly multidimensional, and in addition to the legal, policy, governance, and economic aspects, they also raise big critical ethical questions. This is particularly salient in the life science sector. Uh, should the IP system of tomorrow factor in ethical considerations, for instance, refusing to grant certain patents uh, for public policy reasons, such as preventing human cloning, Yes, well, I think we'll see the primary action targeted at the underlying scientific and technological activity rather than at the property right in relation to the science or the technology. Let me give you an example. If we go back to actually the 1980s, the middle of the 1980s and the Harvard mouse, which was developed, it was the first patent that was granted on a higher organism. So a mouse developed with certain characteristics uh, for actually acquiring cancer and for, therefore, scientific purposes and study. Uh, now, a lot of people focused on, well, you can't grant a patent on a higher organism. But uh, if you look at our behavior in society, well, we're eating higher organisms on a daily basis, and that's much more radical treatment to give, it, to give them than, than patenting them. So... It's the underlying scientific activity that causes the anxiety, I think, rather than the property right. Now, let's go to the present day, and we see that there is a huge discussion about the ethics of hereditary genome editing. You know, editing the human genome in such a way that the edited genome is inherited by the offspring. And there are lots of ethical concerns about that for 
what it does to species, what it does to individuals uh, of the future that are unborn as yet. Uh, now, the way in which the world is starting to tackle that is really scientists getting together and asking for and uh, resolving to have a moratorium on the underlying scientific activity until we understand it better. So I think that's where the primary focus will be rather than in the property right that you might grant over an invention that comes out of hereditary genome editing. Mm -hmm. We'll see ethical moves to ban the scientific activity rather than the patenting. Uh, I think in this sense, the patenting is a secondary phenomenon. It's, of course, important and related, but the primary focus will be the uh, scientific activity. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. We mentioned earlier uh, the knowledge economy, and it's true that uh, numbers of patents and trademarks registrations show that there is a rising demand. It was the first trend that you, you mentioned, uh, and it's true for most new sectors thriving with almost no tangible assets. Think software, algorithms, operating systems, or social media. Do more IP rights mean less and less publicly available information? Or is the dynamic at stake more complex than that? And for you, what does that mean for the trademark system? Look, I think it's a balance always. So let me go back in time to Victor Hugo, the mm. French author. Okay, and the, uh, uh, he, he said in 1878 at uh, an international literary congress that was convened, he said, let's get down to principles, respect for property. We must accept literary property, but at the same time, we must establish the public domain. So he put his finger on it. Uh, on the one hand, you need to have property rights, but you also need to encourage public domain. And there's always going to be a balance between those two. And the two are interactive because if you encourage, if you create incentives for people to write and to produce new literature, you're enlarging the public domain. Now, now, that public domain might be encumbered for a period to give a return to the author, but ultimately the work, Victor Hugo's work, falls into the public domain and anyone can publish it. Or for the specificities of copyright, what he said also in the same speech is, you know, the book belongs to the author, but the thought belongs to humanity. Uh, so it's always a balance. Now. I, I think in this global marketplace that we have created, largely a digital global marketplace, but also a physical global marketplace to some extent, um, there is, of course, a great movement for people to be able to have their markers out there. And that's the trademarks uh, and the brands. So they need to be able to have consumers associating products and services with their source and say, this is the authentic source, we're the one. So the trademark is this great device for connecting consumers and producers. Yeah. Huge numbers, prodigious numbers, as I cited uh, earlier, now in the trademark area. And that's only going to you know, increase. Uh, and I think the question there is, to what extent do we encumber the language? To what extent do we encumber colors, smells now, perfumes, or sounds? 
through these specific marks. When the mark is an invented, a wholly fictional mark that never existed before, well, you're not encumbering anything. You know, it's something that didn't exist previously. The, the greater difficulty and balance is when you start to take out trademarks on certain words that we use commonly in the vocabulary like apple or orange. Of course, then you have a question of balance as to the extent to which they may become exclusive and they become exclusive in relation to a set of products concerning telecommunications or uh, IT products rather than uh, the fruiterers or the, you know, the, the physical marketplace where you go to buy. Uh, fruit and vegetables. While the IP system is evolving, uh, do you believe its administration and governance is or should evolve accordingly? What would be the WIPO's role in the next, let's say, 10 years? Obviously, the volumes that we're seeing in IP applications are getting beyond the capacity of human beings to be able to process. So, trademarks we've been talking about, and it's a good example. Uh, you know, it's almost impossible for a human being to be able, even with classification systems, to identify what possible conflicting marks might be out there. And we're going to need machine intelligence to assist us to do that much more quickly and much more expeditiously and probably with greater certainty. So we have developed, for example, a WIPO, an image searching AI-based application uh, and that can identify similar images in past registrations of trademarks in a matter of a second. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are going to see AI applications heavily used in IP administration in the future. Now, the second comment I think I would make is that what people are going to be increasing, and this is a real challenge, what people are going to increasingly need in this very fast-moving interconnected world uh, is quickly assertable rights. So what do I mean by that? Well, look, take eBay or uh, Alibaba or any of the large trading platforms. You know, people are coming and going at incredible speed and products are being placed there and services placed there at incredible speed. Now, if someone wants to protect an intellectual property right, they're going to need a quickly assertable right, a right that's mm -hmm. granted quickly and that they can assert quickly. So typically, if you find a counterfeit product on an electronic marketplace, the procedure you would use for protection is called notice and takedown. You serve notice on the platform that there is an infringing product uh, and they take it down. But they won't take it down unless you can prove that actually you have a property right which needs to be protected. So you need a quickly assertable right. And design protection becomes more important in those circumstances. Trademark protection becomes more important. So I think we'll see a need for speed in the administration of intellectual property, and that's going to affect uh, everyone. The same you can say about patents. You know, the processing time of patents, uh, unfortunately, and that's a consequence of complexity, is now out of sync with the product life cycles. So the product life cycle, technological life cycle, may be much shorter than the time it takes to grant the property right. Well, that obviously can't go on, uh, or people won't use the patent system. Why would they use it if they can't get a right before the effective life and, uh, of the product has come and gone? And so AI is going to be all over the place, I think, mm -hmm. to enable 
intellectual property administrations to cope with volume and speed. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, now I have a few rapid-fire questions for you, Francis. Whose brain would you like to have had? Well, probably I think Shakespeare, because um, <laughs> he had such a, an extraordinary capacity to be able to describe human behavior uh, and to describe it in words. It's just something um, that I think is unparalleled, at least in the English language. Where do you take your inspiration from? I think life, uh, you know, the, the diversity and the multiplicity of life, it's a, an endless source of wonder. What is the next big brand and new thing? Well, that's a tough one, and um, <laughs> but I would say uh, nature. You know, we're building uh, this world and we're putting so much pressure on nature, whether plant kingdom or animal kingdom, and climate change is having such a terrible impact that I think we're going to place greater and greater and greater value on nature, access to nature. And so everything inspired by nature, I think, is going to be the basis of a, an enormous fascination for people and uh, the basis of brands. What would you have liked to invent or create? Well, music. And look, I'm tone deaf and I can't uh, you know, sing. And um, the one thing I uh, regret is that I didn't have any musical capacity. So being able to contribute to the universal language of music is a fantastic thing. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Audrey. It's my pleasure. My guest today was Francis Gurry, the Director General of the WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization. Thank you for listening to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover brand and new. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.